0: This week on Silicon Reel, we have Alex Stephanie, CEO of Just Park and author of the book, The Business of
1: Sharing. Just Park is like Airbnb without washing sheets. The sharing economy is really a human economy. This is an economy in which people are getting goods and services, not from multinationals or from governments, but from usually just ordinary people. This is about efficiency. So the sharing economy is adding value because it's finding these efficiencies on both sides of the marketplace. And that's why, really, this is just the start of a huge, huge trend. Okay, so it will be absolutely second nature to get a good or service from another person. So you will no longer think of that as a quirky or unusual thing. That will just be part of your daily routine. But London is this astonishing magnet for talent and, and entrepreneurship and ideas and ambition.
0: Silicon Reel presents Alex Stephanie, the business of sharing.
1: This is one of the really challenging things about the sharing economy. It's generally very, very good for consumers, um, but it can be really bad for some of the service providers.
0: Okay, here we go. I want
1: to welcome everyone watching us
0: now live on YouTube. It's, uh, it's Good Friday and uh, we're still here to entertain you with a fabulous story. So let's get going. This is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. My guest today is Alex Stephanie, who's hey. the CEO of Just Park, the world's largest website for shared parking with over a million customers. Almost, Almost. Three quarters of a million. there you go. You guys are backed by Index Ventures and the VC arm of BMW. You also just competed the largest ever equity crowdfunding round in 2015, 3.7 million pounds, which is the legal EU max from over 2,900 investors. Alex, you were educated at Oxford University. You're a mentor at Techstars, and you just wrote a book called The Business of Sharing. I was at your launch party. It was fabulous. Welcome to Silicon Rail. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. It's, 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 it's very awesome to be here. It's a pleasure. You know, every time we start talking, um, we just keep talking. Because when I'm making a short video of you, like at your launch party, or like we did just now, there's just so many things to talk about. Because you're in the middle of the sharing economy, and you just wrote a really detailed book about the sharing economy as well. And we also have a bunch of other things to talk about, like the big crowdfunding campaign. I don't know where to start, but I'm just going to jump <laughs> just, in. Yes, yeah, sure. I was reading yeah, your book, and uh, it's, it's really good. And it's really packed. You said 80,000 words is what it ended up being. Is that right? Which is a a healthy book, but it starts off, you're in San Francisco, you're getting a ride at Lyft and the guy starts talking to you. He knows you're a Brit and it's just, it's a real dive into the sharing economy and what it means and how it's going to change everything. I bet most people watching us have used Airbnb or used Uber, but I don't think we really understand like a lot of the ramifications of the sharing economy. And with Just Park, the more I now mention you and the company, so many of my friends have used Just Park. And so- it's really strange in that sense, and I don't think I've ever been touched by a company and then found out that everyone's actually using it. So I don't know where to start, yeah. but
1: what, where should we start? You know? <laughs> well, I got an Uber here today and I had a similar experience. This doesn't happen every hour, every day, far from it, but I was talking to the guy and he said, hey, what, what do you do? And I said, I actually uh, run a company called Just Park. And then you kind of Leapt out of his seat and said, Hey, I downloaded that app this morning. <laughs> I was like, Really? He's like, You seriously? Yeah. Um, so we had a little chat about that. Um, and that was a kind of nice sharing economy story in itself. Yeah. So uh, this guy was an aspiring actor and he was able to have the flexibility to go to auditions by being. Um, by being self-employed and becoming this sort of micro-entrepreneur as, as an Uber driver. Um, and he wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, you know, Five years ago, he would have had to go to a mini-cab company and probably had much worse working conditions and very fixed hours, and he would have had to crawl his way up, and it wouldn't have been meritocratic. Right. Um, but he was there making cash, and for, you know, it wasn't his dream to be an Uber driver, but it was his dream to become a famous actor. And, that was allowing him to achieve that.
0: Right. So it's not just a business model. It really changes people's lives and changes the choices they
1: can make just by being able to share in a real frictionless way. Is that yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't like business books. It's a bit of a confession. You know, I've, it's something that I feel I should like because I work in the business world. But so, so rarely will I buy and enjoy a business book. And so when, when McMillan came to me and said, hey, do you want to write a business book? My instinctive answer was, not really. I think the world has enough business books. But then I thought more about it. And I realized that this was kind of the anti-business book. Because the sharing economy is really a human economy. This is an economy in which people are getting goods and services, not from multinationals or from governments, but from usually just ordinary people. Um, and so that, I felt, was a story that, that needed to be told. Um, and the other thing that I feel I've been able to bring to this story is what it's like to actually work inside this industry. So um, nothing um, has really ever been written on this subject more than, you know, a blog here or there by, by someone running a sharing economy company. Um, and so that's been great because I can use my own network to interview people like the co-founders of Airbnb or Zipcar or VCs like Fred Wilson in New York or Alfred Lynn at Sequoia. And um, I can also, um, I kind of have an inside view, I guess, on on the challenges of working this economy and growing um, a business within this new economy as well.
0: Let's hear about your story quickly. You used to be a lawyer at a major yeah. firm here in London, and at some point you decided to stop doing that, and then you got, you know, and you're now the CEO of Just Park. Can you just tell me a little bit about that transition?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I was a really bad lawyer. That's probably the <laughs> first place to start. First time I heard that. Yeah. and. Uh, which is yeah. Um, which now I was like, let's get an in-house lawyer because I should not be doing law for fuck. I was a pretty average lawyer, um, but I could see that I had skills that other people in this corporate law firm didn't have, and uh, I felt like I was in the wrong job. After you know two or three weeks, I thought I can I can kind of do this at a push, but it's not really playing to my strengths. So I was really um, working out how I can get myself out of that law firm, and I think the whole time I just was thinking I wanted to, I wanted to basically be forced to find a new direction. And so, after the two years had expired, which was the initial contract, the vast majority of people in in my cohort um, at that law firm got taken on and got placed into departments and began to move up the profession and so on. And this was 2009, and it's sort of deep financial crisis, deep pessimism about the global economy. And they said, hey, Alex, uh, we're not going to make you an offer, Um, so kind of shake hands and good luck type thing. which was upsetting and felt like a a bit of a bit of a trauma at the time, but I think subconsciously it was what I wanted really from Mm. the second week in Um, because, you know, I wasn't the guy giving up the evenings and weekends to do work. I was the guy who was sort of like fleshing out business plans and chatting till six in the morning about, you know, a new business we could launch with friends and stuff like that. So my heart totally wasn't in it. Okay. Um, So you always kind of wanted to branch out a bit. I always wanted to branch out and I wasn't sure what exactly it was. And I wasn't even sure that I wanted to work in tech. I just knew that I wanted to be a uh, sort of master of my own destiny, really. And I, I knew that I wasn't motivated to do stuff for other people. I'm need to. i incredibly motivated. But that motivation comes from within. It doesn't come from other people telling me to do stuff. Right. That's good um, to recognize that
0: about yourself. I'm kind of the same way. If someone tells me to do something, I initially want to say no. But yeah. if I can get myself
1: to do it, I can do things that most people would never, you know, Bother doing exactly, and so I, I, knew that I needed that kind of structure, but I had no idea what sector it would be in or what kind of job I would end up doing. And then a couple of about a year or two after I left this corporate law firm, um, I was broke, and so I didn't. Um, I was super late to get a smartphone, but I finally got a smartphone, um, and it was the Galaxy S One, um, an Android. And I went from this really crappy, uh, probably a Nokia, to um, this Samsung. And uh, it was like you know, sort of pulp fiction, where they open the suitcase, and it's like gold, like ja. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit like that when I turned on this phone. I just realised, wow, this is going to change everything about how we consume goods and services. This is you know, economic opportunity um, of a scale that you know, is almost in, you know incomparable with anything that, that's kind of gone on before in as regards technological change. You know, I want to learn about this, and I want to be part of this, and I want to help people um, get goods and services and improve their lives using this amazing piece of technology. So uh, that was really the catalyst. And then I went to a whole bunch of networking events, and one of them was a thing called Launch 48, which is run by UCL. You start a company over the course of a weekend. Um, I met Anthony, who started um, Parking My House, which then became Just Park. Right. And we were then only a couple of people, and I've been CEO for two and a half years now.
0: Two and a half years. Yeah.
1: And where are you now? For people that don't understand what Just Park is, can you just break it down quite yeah, simply? Yeah, of course. I guess it okay. should be obvious, but. So a very short history lesson. The business started as Park on My House. Right. And Anthony had this idea. He was in San Francisco. He was looking for parking and uh, around a Giant Stadium. And he saw these driveways. And he was just thinking, Frank, this, is, this is ridiculous. Like, I want to park there. They would want my money, but I can't park there. Why can't I park there? Right. Surely there should be some website that just matches up their supply it's, it's with funny. my demand. It sounds like something a six-year-old would be saying while mommy and dad yeah. are looking around for a place. They'd be like, why don't
0: we park in their house? And you'd be like, shut up. I'm trying to find a place. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's it's almost like so obvious,
1: but so not obvious that yeah. this capacity I think that just, used. I mean, the, the six-year-old thing, I think that's a perfect analogy, because it just right. goes to show how we get older and then we kind of get a little bit less creative because yeah. society says oh you can't do that yeah. so he you know, He, being an adult then, was like, oh, I'm not actually just going to park there. If he'd been a six-year-old, he probably would have just parked there. But he thought, okay, I'm not going to park there, but I am going to come back home. I have my very serious uh, job waiting for me at Deloitte, a big accountancy firm. Um, and then I'm going to think about maybe quitting my job and building this website. Um, so it was just really just one idea. He was a young guy. I think it was 23, Anthony, when he started this. Um, and he hadn't really had any experience at all of business. He was very interested in technology. His dad's a software engineer. Um, But he didn't know anything about business. And he got this idea out there, and it's really just an idea. And it got massive initial traction. And now, today, there are 17,000 families in the UK making money from their driveway. And they list the space, and people come and go, and the money just dropped into their bank account. Incredibly easy. Um, But then what we did is we had all this demand. So at that point, we had, say, maybe four or 500,000 drivers booking these driveways. And of course, these people are also in need of other types of parking uh, in the center of cities where you don't have driveways. So we'd build up, say in London, this kind of donut, um, all these driveways, but then in zones one, you don't have driveways, so we need to really fill in this gap. So then we started working with car parks and hotels and became Just Park, and okay. they now are kind of the jam in the donut. Okay, gotcha. So it started off just the ex- excess capacity of people's houses, and now you've sourced new, new capacity. Exactly. So it started off as this... Uh, peer-to-peer marketplace, and it's still um, a very large peer-to-peer marketplace. What we've done is really put a sort of B2C layer on top of this. Okay,
0: Wow, fascinating. And is London your major market? How does it differ now? You go from different countries. What does it look like in the States? Tell me, what is your...
1: So, London's our biggest city globally, but the platform is able to be used by anyone in the world. So, it gets used all over the world as a result. The US is our second biggest market, and we don't really market or promote the service there at all. We've never had an employee in the US, but it's really gratifying that it is getting used. And so, for example, in Boston last year, there was about $40,000 going back into people's pockets, which is kind of a small sum. But then when you add up all of these cities from around the world, um, it gets become quite a big long tail. And the interesting question for us strategically is, yes, we can see that this is a service that people love and get value from, but how should we allocate our resources between cities that are already on that curve and cities that are you know, really just seeing some sort of initial um, an issue sort of action. Right. It's tricky sure. to know, like, whether you should put people in the city if that's
0: going to help or yeah. or hurt your resources, that kind of thing. Just going back to the sharing economy really quick, what are some of the big takeaways from this book that might not be obvious from people who've, you know, mm-hmm. used Airbnb as a, as a as a seller or as a buyer or have done some sharing things? Like, what is what are some things that are really going to, because it's going to rattle the business model of everyone, the yep. fact that this exists in the future. What are some of the things that we should kind of keep an eye out for, whether you work in a corporation or just as a, as a consumer, of things that are going
1: to sure. change. So let me just uh, explain the structure of the book real brief. Okay. Um, so basically, it's split into chapters that relate to all of the different stakeholders in the sharing economy. So there's a chapter called Consumers, which is about how consumers are deriving value from the sharing economy. There's a chapter called Corporates, which is about how corporates are responding. There's one on regulation called Governments, um, and so on. There's one uh, on investors as well. So there's, there's six different chapters. They will look at these different... Um, ways into the sharing economy, and it's really reflective of the fact that this is a very, very collaborative economy that is bringing different value to very different sorts of people and also very different challenges to different sorts of people. Um, So it's written such that people can just dive into the book. So say you are a corporate and you're interested in how corporates are going to be challenged and need to engage with these new companies, then you just head straight to the corporate section. So for example, you, you you mentioned that point. And what I talk about there is the different ways that um, big multinational incumbent companies are responding to what is essentially a competitive threat. And there are some uh, sectors that are responding really positively. So, for example, the automotive sector is embracing a lot of these new sharing models. Okay. Um, BMW, meanwhile. BMW, uh, yeah. They they invested in 2011 in us. Um, They have uh, also a service called DriveNow, which is basically car sharing, premium car sharing. They have a venture capital fund, which is to do with mobility services. This is an example of a business that realizes they just can't keep doing the same old thing forever. patterns of consumption are changing and they're not going to be, they can't have a huge business just based on selling cars. So what they need to do is they need to sell access to these cars. They need to sell mobility services and they really need to totally reconceive what they are as a business. Um, But then also there are sectors that really aren't innovating um, in the same way. So for example, if you look at the accommodation sector, Hotels have done very, very little to tap into the new demand for accommodation that sites like Airbnb have um, really uh, ignited. So I think that's a shame and I think that's rather short sighted on their part. The majority of energy from the big hotel groups has really gone into lobbying against um, the threat, right. as they see it of sites like Airbnb. Right. But actually, if I were CEO of Hilton, I'd be saying, hang on a sec, it's, there is a demand clearly for this new type of accommodation. Why don't I? In say New York City, put together a curated marketplace right. called Hilton Homes to help facilitate it. Right, and there's going to be some beautiful, luxurious homes, and they can be serviced from a nearby Hilton hotel. And instead of selling one bedroom to a businessman for a couple of nights, maybe he's going to take a whole Hilton home, and he's going to spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars taking his family to New York City, and he's going to have a different type of experience. Um, so I think that. Yeah, I, th- I think some of these businesses are responding positively, some less so. Um, and in that chapter, I talk about all the different ways that they are responding. There's sort of four different strategies. But yeah, right. Go read the book to find out more. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> and uh,
0: and taxis are another similar piece. I mean, you see in London the black cabs, you know, protest Uber. And in most cities, they are, you know, holding fast and holding to these licenses. And yeah. I mean, I I love black cabs. It's something I fell in love with London when I first came here, 12, 13 years ago. And I thought it was like my private limousine, and everyone yeah. loves a black cabbie, etc. But at the same time, you know, when it's one in the morning five years ago, and these guys are driving past you because they want to go home, you're like, "Wait a second! This is, you know, this isn't fair. This isn't a free market." And so, at the same time, you're like, "Okay, we need to move forward, and we need to really have a supply and demand marketplace." So, yeah, it's interesting to see. And then there's the innovator's dilemma. I used to work in banking. You know, we didn't want electronic trading to happen because it was going to make me obsolete. And so you you almost fight it without thinking about fighting it. You just yeah. ignore it as long as you can until then one day you either capitulate
1: or get taken over. Well, I mean, I think this is one of the really challenging things about the sharing economy. It's generally very, very good for consumers, um, but it can be really bad for some of the service providers. So Black Cabs is an obvious example. I've lived in a few different places, but I'm very much born and bred Londoner. And for me, as with you, a non londoner Black Cabs is still so synonymous with London. Mm -hmm. And I used to get Black Cabs the whole time when I was coming home late from work, and it was just be almost like my daily route home and I really loved it, like, they have this sort of low-level grumpiness almost, that's so invigorating, you get out of a cab and, you know, I've had amazing conversations with black cab drivers and, like, as a, as a bunch there, hard-working, honest, like, a great bunch of people, I think, have added so much to the fabric of London, and yet, they're really expensive. And they don't provide people with value for money, and that the skills they have, like knowing every single backstreet and, and taking the knowledge, are kind of ancient skills. And in yeah. ten years' time, they're going to be like you know wood carving or you know knitting or stuff like that. You know they, these are like homely, antiquated skills. And so, one of the challenges of the sharing economy for the people working in some of these incumbent industries is you know how they're going to adapt, and. Whereas it's great for us that we can get an Uber home for six quid or something like that when it would have cost 16 quid in a black cab, actually, there's a lot of people who are gonna be um, really hit by these new structural changes. They may be too old, they're too inflexible, they're too low-skilled to move across these new platforms. Yeah, no,
0: no, definitely. Uh, And that's something that's gonna see how that shakes out, you know, because, like you said, it's, it's fascinating how these skills that they had. I mean, the knowledge is an amazing thing. If you're not from London, these cabbies sometimes will spend between two and four years memorizing this, the streets. Yep. They've done studies on their brain, and they actually link through like a cerebral cortex piece, the two hemispheres of the brain when they've done like these CT scans. Yep. So they actually change their physiology by memorizing all this stuff. But, you know, that's just not necessary anymore. And so it's going to be hard you know, to to watch this happen. But again, it's a market, you know. It is a market, and
1: and ultimately, this is about efficiency. So the sharing economy is adding value because it's finding these efficiencies on both sides of the marketplace. And that's why, really, this is just the start of a huge, huge trend. Um, Because strip it down, and this is a leaner way of consuming and providing services. You know, a good example of that is, say, pit of pair finance. Um, if you look at a business like Lending Club, it's now I, IPO'd recently. Um, it's lending around $300 million a month. America, right? America, Based yeah. I think, uh, I think NASDAQ um, yeah. or NYSE. Anyway, it's a uh, US exploitation, um, French CEO, but headquartered in, in San Francisco. Hmm. And uh, so, they're lending about $300 million a month, which is tiny. Um, macroeconomically, this is a drop in the ocean of, of you know, credit around the world, um, but it's growing very quickly and it's going to continue to grow because it's ultimately just a more efficient model. So if you look at a bank, they have an operational expense ratio of something like 5 to 7% whereas right. these guys are doing it sub 2% and getting lower as they scale that technology. Right. And so in some senses, this is just a mass game. You know, it's the same with Just Park. You know, if you look at the peer-to-peer inventory, that is way cheaper. It's about half the price of parking on the street, just because there's so much less demand for it. Right. And so, again, it's just a maths game of so actually this is just more efficient. And a lot of companies like Lending Club or Just Park or all of these companies in the sharing economy are finding efficiencies. So it's inevitable at those kind of ratios. I mean, I think it's it is going to be adopted. I think it is inevitable, which is why you see so much money. Right. Going into this sector, billions and billions of dollars. The question is, are these sharing economy businesses going to be really big, or are they going to be colossal? And I think that's really all that's up for grabs. If you look at the macro drivers, they are here to stay, and they are putting people on this. They're they're keeping these companies on this trajectory. Things like the adoption of social media, um, increasing smartphone penetration, population growth urbanization, all of these macro factors that are making sharing economy companies viable are really only going to continue. Right. Fast forward 20 years. What is
0: the world going to look like as it's so much more shared? You know, are we going to walk outside and then will there, be, will there be no cars on the streets? Will it all be on demand? Will every piece of excess inventory being shared? Will be someone in our house when we're at work? I mean, like, what, 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 I know you can't predict the future, but what are some <laughs> of the things that will be like totally like, oh my gosh it's now
1: all been made efficient all of a sudden. Like. Okay, so it will be absolutely second nature to get a good or service from another person. So you will no longer think of that as a quirky or unusual thing. That will just be part of your daily routine. Right. Um, if you were to buy something from eBay, you would still think of it from a, a person on eBay rather than a shop, which is about 25% of their revenue, you would still think of yourself as doing something a little unusual or eccentric. That would just become the norm. Um, for the reason that you just really talked about, the efficiency of these models. Um, and these marketplaces, which is really the core of the sharing economy, are just going to get bigger and more powerful. And again, this comes down to efficiency. And so uh, you know, if you look at the growth of the marketplace, um, really ancient invention. Um, I don't know if you ever played Civilization. No. Uh, so Civilization is like the geekiest game ever. And so I'm just going off on it's a like massive tangent. I'm, I'm going off on a massive tangent, Brian, because oh, we've got an hour. It's okay. good. The geeks out there will know um, that there is a computer game called Civilization um, for kids that didn't kind of go out too much, like me. And uh, when your civilization is growing, you get various inventions. And one of those inventions is a marketplace. And this is this sort of primitive thing. And people come together in the center of your little town. And it creates commerce. It's great. Um, And so this is a really, really ancient concept. And then these marketplaces got bigger and bigger over time. And that was great too, because you could have more supply and more demand, and that created efficiencies. Um, So in Europe, for example, the biggest marketplace is Krakow in Poland, and for hundreds of years, people would go there, converge there, for miles around. And that was great, lots of people, and you could go on a river near agricultural lands. Yeah, it's in a a big city. Yeah, there's there's a river there. Voltiverse, so you can converge, in, and that's great. And, you know, you head, out, you, you head there with a little pocket of coins and you want to buy a cow, that's great, because there's going to be 80 people selling cows, and you can find the right cow. Right. And then the internet came along and said, actually, you can have uncapped supply and demand. You know, screw, like, this Krakow marketplace that's 400 metres across or whatever it is. You can have billions of people in this marketplace, in this online marketplace. And so that is... The ultimate. This is this is the ultimate underlying phenomenon, that as people become more and more connected, these marketplaces are just going to be um, absorbing and eating into all the incumbent industries because they are so much more efficient. Right. Um, so yeah, that's a, a taste of the future. I also think you know there's going to be some sharing economy losers as well. That's for sure. So particularly on labour marketplaces, it's a really challenging place to be. You know, this is somewhat touching on the the black cab market. Right. They have to re-educate themselves and find new pieces. Yeah. I mean, part of of these efficiencies is that you pay as a consumer as little as possible for the services. So, like in Krakow, you're paying as little as possible for the cow that you want. On a labor marketplace, you're paying as little as possible for someone to clean your house or do your dry cleaning or, or whatever it is. It's great for you as a consumer, but it's pretty challenging if you, as a service provider, cleaning or whatever, during dry cleaning, are charging the very, very floor. Right. So it hopefully, hopefully makes up. I, mean, when I talk to every single Uber
0: driver that I sit with, and I always ask them, and they're, they're always happy because they're doing more work. But that's,
1: that's in that sector. That might not be across other sectors. Because they make up in volume. Yeah. I, I, and I, I think they are generally very happy now. Um, the question, even with something like Uber, is what regulation is going to stop Uber as a platform exerting disproportionate control? over the participants on its marketplace. So even now, if Uber wants to slash prices in a city, it slashes prices. Yeah. And you, as a driver, just have to deal with that. Yeah. If Uber brings in a policy or has a policy which says, you know, if you're ill, you don't get paid. Well, this is the reality. If you're ill, you don't get paid, okay? If your car breaks down, you don't get paid. You know, that's, that's the reality. So life can be quite tough on these sharing economy marketplaces. and. It's slightly Darwinian really, you know, the strongest will survive. and that's just entrepreneurship, really, because what it's doing is it's creating kind of mass entrepreneurship. Yeah,
0: yeah. It reminds me a bit of like the recession when it hit in America. You know, everybody was upset and they had to find new jobs. But in America, they're very good at cutting workforces and getting rid of, you know, uh, people that aren't performing and they re educate themselves. And now it's recovered as an economy much faster than a lot of the European economies that, say, have employment contracts and they're much more yeah. about a socialist mind frame. So it's, I guess, it is all about. Finding the efficiency and finding as a person what you should be doing. Maybe it's not in these old service sectors. I don't know. It's a little harsh too. Yeah. Let me ask you about fundraising because this okay. is one of the fascinating parts of your story. You, uh, Just Park, got funding from uh, Index Ventures last year. Is that right? 2014. Ye- yep. Index, uh, huge company. We have one of our partners here talking about taking Just Eat public. You know, I would say it's the marquee VC firm in London. One of the, right? I mean, if you get funding from Index, you know, Saul Klein, you're in the know. You're with a lot of other great companies that have also been funded by their, a lot of, v, a lot of companies, that would be their dream. And then they would go continue building their company. Yep. You decided to go tap the crowdfunding market. And I wanted to know why you did it. Was it difficult for Index to even entertain that idea? You really are trailblazing in this sense, because usually people do it the other way around, or at least that's what the public thinks. We think of the Kickstarter to start a movie or something, and we don't really understand crowdfunding. But you did it after the fact. Can you just break down that that whole thought process?
1: Sure. Okay, so it started off as a kind of plan B. I was walking home one night, and I was thinking, okay, we're having all these conversations with all of these VCs. Um, but as everyone knows, VCs can kind of string out conversations. They find out more, but, you know, having interest and having nice meetings and this kind of thing with VCs is very different to getting to the point where they write your check. Right. And so hard enough running a company, let alone fundraising while you're running the company, <laughs> let alone being <laughs> let on <laughs> let writing. Right, yeah. Right, and right, writing right, a book. Right. Don't forget that. Jeez. Right. And writing a book um, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was working home thinking, well, maybe what, we'll, you know, what if they're just leading us on a kind of merry dance and. These deals just don't come together. Well, we need a backup. So maybe we should look into crowdfunding, because we could see that lots of companies were doing it. Um, I knew that Just Park was solving a common problem. It was well understood. It had a pretty significant user base then of about four or 500,000 people. So I was thinking, OK, hey, let's look into this as a backup plan. How are we going to work out if this is a viable backup plan or not to raise money from a VC? Why don't we just ask them? So I remember emailing Anthony. No, I picked up the phone. I was like, hey, why don't we just ask our customers if they want to do an equity crowdfunding and work out if it's a backup option or not? So he said, yeah, OK. That sounds like a pretty sensible idea. Um, Let's do it tomorrow. (laughs) So got to work tomorrow, and I drafted an email which basically said, we might be doing equity crowdfunding, this isn't an offer to subscribe for shares, in the event, blah, blah, blah. And it had some sort of... Former lawyer. Yeah, former lawyer, (laughs) hopefully not breaking too many financial regulations. (laughs) Um, So, we got this email out and it linked to a a Google form, and it was incredibly simple. It was just, you know, what's your name? Um, How much would you be interested in invest, you know, subject to, uh, you know, full terms of the deal, blah, blah, blah. We didn't know what to expect. I, I had very low expectations, personally. And um, we got it out, and the response was just unbelievable. So we had hundreds and hundreds of emails back, we had hundreds of small pledges, and those pledges cumulatively added up to more than half a million pounds from 5% of our user base. Okay, so you only pulled 5% we of user 5% base. 5% just, just so as a test. Yeah, as a test. And then we thought, wow, that's crazy. Let's repeat the test. a lot of money. So we repeated the test. On a different 5%. On a totally randomized additional 5%. Okay. And saw an almost identical result. Wow. So then we're thinking, this is seriously exciting. There is a genuinely large appetite to own some of the business and share in our success from our customers. That's awesome. And... If we can make that happen, then I think that will not only be great for them, but I think it will be great for the company. And so it turned out actually that we did get an offer from Index. And then at that point we were thinking, well, hang on a second, we've got these two options. They're both super attractive. Can we have our cake and eat it? (laughs) Can we make both types of investment work? And so we basically worked out how to structure this. And to cut a long story short, it was really essentially a whip around. We didn't want to have the double dilution of issuing a whole bunch of new shares to the crowd and a whole bunch of new shares to index. We didn't really need the money. Um, So we thought, maybe we can issue new shares to the crowd and get indexed allocation from existing shareholders. So essentially, we did a whip around. And we went to BMW, and we went to an angel investor. And um, Anthony, as, as well, agreed to sell a few shares. Um, and we were able to kind of grab together enough shares to get index into the business. Okay, so the new shares were for the equi- for the crowd, and then the the, the the index bought previously existing shares. Exactly, and that's called the whip around, or is it whip around when you're no you no? I'm equity? saying like a whip around is you know, like when you're doing a. Whipping around for cash—that so is okay, really English right. expression. Like a whip round is like, hey, everyone, you know, chuck something in. Right. right. And so that was really what it was like. Is say, like, hey guys, we're all shareholders. Everyone really wants to work with Index, um, and the guy that we're working with at Index and is now on our board is Robin Klein, who is just a, a, an awesome guy um, and has an amazing track record um, of working with tech companies. Um, and he really—it was an. It was obviously the case we wanted to involve them in, in the business and, and they've been great so far. So to allow that to happen, we had to say, hey, guys, they need some shares. You got some shares. Can we work something out here? And everyone was really amenable to that. And so, yeah, we were able to pull together this really interesting sort of hybrid deal of, Crowd plus VC. Right. Well, congratulations
0: on that. A lot of CEOs would have just said one or the other. I mean, again, that's really almost thinking outside the box of look at those driveways, we should park in them because, you know, a lot of people would have, by definition, said, oh, index is in, and the, then we won't do this. So, you know, that was big right there. Now, talk to me about this crowdfunding round. Why choose CrowdCube? There's a bunch of different platforms in, in London or in the UK. Um, did it affect the fact that you couldn't do equity crowdfunding in the US? And then,
1: how did you get so many people and how did you break all these records? So, there are a couple of major platforms in the UK. One is CrowdCube, the other is Cedars. We um, yeah, had Jeff Lynn here. Come yeah, a year ago, both yeah. both excellent businesses. Yeah. Um, so, really tough decision. Um, so, ultimately, just a, a, a tough decision and a commercial one. Um, but yeah, I think, that, as I said, I think they're both great businesses. Um, um, and there's a, a ton of other, I think, equity crowdfunding platforms yeah. that are emerging too. So, I think AngelList are now in Europe as well. Yeah. Um, But uh, what was the question? How how did we? Yeah, so you chose the platform, Crowdcube you
0: chose. And then did you know it was going to be that big? Uh, Is there anything you did to facilitate the size of it? Uh, Or you said it was 370% oversubscribed and we did a quick video. What was
1: that process like? So we were confident based on that test that I mentioned. But you never know until you know with crowdfunding. Yeah. One, no. one thing about people is, and we're doing this
0: now with our premium service, you can ask them if they'll pay for yeah, it, exactly. which is a, a completely
1: non-correlated to whether they will, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And this is ultimately you know, monopoly money for them. It's like oh, I will invest 500 pounds, or well, will you? Right. And then a couple of weeks before we went live, we realized that we wouldn't probably be eligible for EIS tax relief, which mm-hmm. um, for people who aren't familiar with this relief, it's a really, really um, powerful um, capital gains and income tax relief available for investors in certain qualifying companies in the UK. Yeah. And it's a major, major reason why people invest in these um, companies on crowdfunding platforms, um, because almost all of them will have EIS or SEIS, which is an even better tax relief. Right. So, to, so when we didn't have this EIS tax relief, we suddenly became not only one of the biggest Um, attempted crowdfundings in history, but to my knowledge, I think the only one that hasn't been able to promote this fundraising with these tax reliefs. Wow. Then you couldn't get it because of the index investment or because of the size? We couldn't get it for a boring technical reason around um, the rules and the fact that we're operating in a sort of property space. Okay. So you Um, went ahead anyways. We went ahead anyways, somewhat nervous, (laughs) because this was really breaking new ground. Right. Um, And on that front, it was breaking new ground in a scary way because we just didn't know what the demand would be for investments in a company that didn't have this tax relief. Um, but, you know, it, why, did, why did it explode? Um, and I think we had the existing user base, so it was uh, you know, make, makes a huge impact. So we emailed a third of our user base, um, and in the first hour, when it went live originally, we had an investment every 23 seconds of a third of our user base. Um, so. You have a really kind of a f- touchy-feely
0: product. I mean, people are like, it's my driveway, and you guys are helping me get this income that I didn't know I would have. And like, you guys are almost like a Robin Hood of, of an industry. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying you must,
1: your, your customers must have a real bond with you. Yeah. I just feel it from your business model. Yeah. I mean, well, we had a lot of people getting in touch saying, hey, I'm someone earning money from uh, Just Park. Can you withhold my earnings and convert it into shares? Wow which you know, technically it just didn't make sense. Right. We just had to say, look, no, no. Um, <laughs> well, but feel well, free well, to withdraw question. it and go to the website and invest. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 and there is a huge um, affinity, I think, for the brand. Um, drivers, because this is solving this big pain point of parking and taking a lot of stress out their lives and also saving the money. And then on the property owners, because they're essentially doing next to nothing and just having this new revenue stream. Right. Right. Um, they sync it to their bank account when they sign up, and then drivers come and go, and the money just pops in. (laughs) So it's really, really effortless compared to a lot of the other sharing economy platforms. Um, It it, it genuinely is a doddle. So one of the co-founders of Yelp said, just park is like Airbnb without washing sheets. (laughs) And uh, it's kind of like that. I mean, people, Airbnb is a fantastic business and people are doing great on it, but it is a lot of work. Okay, You know, driving on Lyft or being a task rabbit, is a lot of work, yeah. but Jess Park is kind
0: of no work. So you hit the limit, uh, 2,900 people, you hit the EU maximum, which is 5 million euros, yep. the equivalent, and um, boom, was there any, anything that you learned in retrospect, anything you would do differently, or anything that surprised you about that whole process?
1: I think we, were, I mean, I, I think we did a, a decent job, we were, we were very organized, but you can always be more organized so, in terms of anticipating questions, I think you can do all you can always do more work on that and make sure that you sort of populate the crowdfunding platform with stock answers. Okay, um, and so we could have sort of seeded some of these answers, which were to questions that were ultimately pretty predictable FAQs and things, that kind of thing. Yeah, <clears throat> um, so we could have probably had an F a specific FAQ site, but not, I don't think anyone really anticipated the, the volume of interest we had. If you go to the average, fundraise on all of these platforms, there'll be you know, five or six forum threads um, and that's great. And there's just people picking up some kind of salient points. And, you know, it's helpful. For us, I think we have now something like 87 forum threads and for the three weeks that the, that the round was live, it was my job really to monitor all of these forum threads and some are just a few posts, others might be, you know, 12 pages of posts. Right. Um, and so just a lot of communications to manage um, with a lot of different stakeholders. You've got thousands of people investing in the company. You've got this big posh VC who have their own you know, concerns inevitably around how this is going to come off. You have the corporate investor who is you know, uh, an innovative brand, but also quite a traditional company yeah. in many ways. Again, yeah. like, you could argue a lot more to lose than gain from something like this. You have an angel investor, <laughs> you, know, you have employees. We have a management team. So, yeah, I mean, your next, lot, your next book should be called So You Want to Be a CEO. <laughs> right? And so how long did the whole
0: process take you?
1: Uh, we were live on the platform for about three weeks. Okay. Um, but then there were months of preparation. Okay. All right. And what is, I love to
0: ask this question, What ultimately what is crowdfunding or what was it in your stake? Is it marketing? You know, is it selling shares to your customers? Is it, you know... Um, is it, you know, a, a guarantee that people will continue to use your services in the future? I mean, like, if you had to put your finger on what you've just accomplished here, like, where is all the goodwill or how would you describe
1: this? I mean, I think it's elements of all of those things. Okay. Um, ultimately, what it is, is engagement right. um, with people. And that is something that is so, so hard to achieve in this increasingly media, fast-paced, saturated world of ours. There are so many fricking companies wanting your attention, demanding your time, demanding your money, all of these things. Um, If you are a shareholder in one of them, a small one, a private one, um, one that is still in some ways an underdog, even though it's a a decent-sized company now, um, you will back up that company, you'll fight for that company, and you'll use that company. Um, And so it becomes a kind of USP, really, for the business. Um, and what is really exciting for us at Just Park is how having thousands of investors is just going to enable us to tell this story time and again. Um, and there will be people in the pub telling their friends, there will be people in having dinner parties talking about this new company they invested in. Yeah, evangelists. Evangelists thinking about us when they need parking. Right. Um, and that is, that is ultimately why we're doing this. Um, because we think, it sounds really cliche, but we think we are stronger together when we're able to bring our shareholders into the business and a material number of them now, so you know, almost 3,000 people. If you factor in their friends, their family, this is a substantial network we're right. building
0: engagement that is the greatest word because i think that's all any company really wants and you could even argue that the market cap of a company is is the the measure of their engagement you know whether it's google or apple or airbnb all these have a massive amount of yeah. engagement you know uh, one of our uh, mutual friends nick brisborne at forward partners i saw him a couple weeks ago and he said brian he said Emotion. He's like, you need to find out what the emotion is in the product. Yeah. And I never thought of it that way. Whether it's anger because I can't get this and I want this, you know, some type of a pain point, yeah. or whether it's you know I have a big smile on my face because I just got from back from Airbnb or I just got a direct deposit because my uh, my driveway was used while I was at work today, yeah. or
1: uh, you know all of these things. Like if you find the emotion point, then that's where. I mean, absolutely. During the fundraising, we did two investor events at our offices, and again, we didn't really know what to expect because we hadn't done this before. Um, but they sold out and we had the first one, we capped numbers not you know, a little bit more cautiously. We had 30 or 40 people. The next one we probably had 60 or 70 people, um, you know, giving up their evening to come to our office and meet the team and discuss the business. These aren't people that work <laughs> in parking or, you know, these are just normal people from all right. kinds of backgrounds. And it was this fascinating um, cross-section of British society. And, there was one time where there was a guy running a £15 billion pound private equity fund um, talking to a guy who worked um, for the council as a, as a refuse collector. You know, people that would never come into contact ordinarily, um, but were actually there because they were excited by this, fundamentally what we're doing, you know, solving this big problem in cities. And uh, that's that's just really, really cool to see this kind of, fascinating and big alliance of all kinds of different people. That's incredible engagement. All right, talk to me about
0: corporate culture. I know you recently had a retreat, and I want to ask about how you've developed the corporate culture in Just Park. It's something that we talk a lot about on the show, but I haven't really dived that deep into it. It's something I'm thinking about with, you know, London and Silicon Real. what kind of culture we want, because, I mean, that ultimately, you could argue, is defines the success or failure of a company. You know, YC, Y Combinator, they always say that that third hire is the biggest or the second yeah. hire is the biggest. I know the Airbnb guys, the three founders, they didn't make their first hire for like six months. And it was a crucial component. And then as you build that team, you have to make sure that everyone's still on the same page. So yeah. um,
1: tell me about culture at Just Park. Yeah, well, it's culture with any fast-growing company, I think, is particularly challenging just because there are more and more people coming into the business more and more quickly. Now we've grown from uh, f- about five people a year and a half ago to 33 people today, and it'll probably be 60 people, potentially 70 people wow. by the end of the year. Wow. So there's this is a big question you know, how do you keep people on the same page? How do you create a state of affairs where the people that are already in the business feel, uh, feel excited um, by the people coming into the business and feel that these people are on the same page as them, and that the people coming into the business understand the business they're coming into and, uh, and feel excited by it. And similarly, even though they're not that kind of founding team, they're not yeah. the first 10 on the ground. You know. uh, Peter Thiel says, you know, one of the questions he asks a, a CEO or founder is, you know, why would the 50th person join your company? And I think a big part of that is making sure that the culture is right. Um, and so yeah, incredibly important for, for many different things, you know, employee hiring. Um, we've got to hire the right people who will fit in. They need to understand what we're about and how we approach work. Because that ultimately is, for me, that's what culture is. It's um, a way of approaching work and a way of approaching your colleagues. It's sort of nothing more than that. There's Mm. a good definition by Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb. He says, culture is um, a shared way of doing something with a passion. Mm. And uh, it's really important that everyone understands what that is, and for me, that's actually the difference between startup culture and big kind of corporate culture. So, um, a relative of mine works for a, a huge financial services business, and in their lobby, uh, these sort of generic terms that have think one of them is respect. You know, and I think people just walk past them and just say, "Well, that's kind of meaningless. That's just a bland, vanilla value that doesn't really connect with anything that I do. It's just too abstract." Um, But culture in a startup and certainly a just park is really about how how you do things. Um, And we make sure that people understand how you do things. And the more that people understand how to do things and approach their work and life, the less kind of boring corporate rules you need. Again, because people are on the same page. So what we really are doing right now is we've established a set of core values. And, for example, one of them is uh, getting shit done. Another of them is eat sleep park, which is really about this sort of ongoing obsession with solving parking. Um, There's about 10 or 15 of them, and we are, from these core values, establishing um, a much more succinct um, cultural identity. Um, And it's really important that we have this now bedded down and understood um, within the company, because if we don't have it there when we're 30-something people, we're not going to make a good transition to this sort of 60 70 person company it's mm-hmm. a really difficult stage in a company's life yeah this is one of those times where things go wrong it's yeah and it's, it's the time which people say you know or could say I hope and I'm confidence won't happen you know it's not like the good old days when it was just you know us 15 it's become this big company and there's all this process and it's not fun anymore and so we're always thinking about ways to counteract that um, and right. you know an easy way is just making it an awesome place to work so we have a chef for example that cooks um, a free lunch every day um, and and breakfast on one day and tea on another day. We have massages. We just do these quarterly retreats, which are a huge part of the culture of the business as well. So four times a year, we go out of London to a beautiful place. The next one is um, in a foreign country for the first time. And we spend a few days together. It's really intense, working on strategy for the next quarter, thinking about how the previous quarter went, and also just having fun. It's a large sociable element. And now I think it feels like people are really working with their friends. And what's really, really um, gratifying for me is when people talk about how excited they are to come back into work on the weekend. And I know that their working week is as or as much fun as the rest of their week. And that's, for me, that's, incre- like it's, that's the most motivating thing. If I can have a group of people working at Just Park who are fulfilled in their working lives, um, then A, they're going to propel the success of the company, but be just as an end itself. I mean, I fundamentally have responsibility to these people to um, not only make sure that we can pay them at the end of every month, but also make sure they're happy and challenged and fulfilled in their working lives. How do you
0: relax? I mean, you're writing a book the last year, year are 18 uh, months? 18 months. 18 months. <laughs> you're doing equity crowdfunding. You're keeping the index guys happy. You're keeping the Beamer guys happy. <laughs> you're trying to keep the company culture going and you're scaling at a massive rate. You seem pretty calm.
1: Um, how do you, how do you keep it all together? A bit of yoga. We also have yoga classes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I do that once a week um, with, with some colleagues and uh, play guitar. But uh, yeah, I think it is you know, a challenge. Um, I, well, the job that I'm doing now is a pretty stressful job, to be honest. Um, but for me, that's part of the fun of it. I wouldn't want to be doing a job that wasn't stressful. It's a bit of a paradox. But I like, I like the adrenaline, and I like the difficulty. Of, of, of being CEO of a startup company. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it throws up, a, you know, a million different um, challenges, you know, every quarter. And working your way through these things and getting stronger and bigger and succeeding as a result is, is, is just incredible fun. Right.
0: Now, the future, I mean, it's funny because you run into different types. Some guys are like, I'm going to build this thing until it drops, like, you know, Bezos-type atmosphere. Some people are like, look, in the future, I might do something else when this gets built in five years, da-da-da-da-da. You know, do you have one thought or the other? I mean, could this be a part of your career? You know, how do you look at this, at this business?
1: For us, it's really about solving this big problem. Okay, so we see parking as a major global problem, a major urban problem. And if you think that now the majority of the world's population live in cities, by 2050, about 75% of the world's population live in cities, we need to start solving these major urban problems. Why is it such a big urban problem? Largely because parking contributes massively to traffic and pollution. So the research says that anywhere between 10 and even 30% of all the traffic and pollution in city centres is caused by people circling for parking. They get to the destination, and they just drive around because they don't have a space. Mm. The fundamental difference in our model is actually that people go straight to a space that's allocated. So although people perceive us as being different primarily just because it's a different type of inventory, it's driveways, and hotels, and churches, and this kind of thing, for me, the biggest difference is it's an entirely different and more efficient journey. It's straight from A to B. So that's really what we're all focused on, I don't really look to the next step. If we can spend a period of our lives solving this huge problem in cities, then that's a fantastic use of a few years. And so we're really just focused on that. And as I was saying to you just before that, um, that we started recording, you know, this isn't a, as, as startup people and certainly just part, we're not primarily motivated by money. And if we had been motivated by money, I would have probably try to stay in corporate law and other people in the company would have been doing a bunch of other different things. It's really about leaving the world a little bit better than we found it. And if we can solve um, a major urban problem, then that would be great.
0: Right. No, I mean, uh, it's funny because money doesn't Money doesn't keep you working on the weekends and keep you through those hard times. and it, you know, It's the passion that gets entrepreneurs through the hard times, and there are plenty of them. So I want to hear uh, a few final things here about you know, uh, how you hire and all those things. But, but briefly, we were talking earlier about a uh, recent ski trip we were at, and there were some Yanks in the room, and we had some Americans and Brits and all yeah. that stuff. And, and then we hit on this concept of culture in Britain versus culture in America. So this is Silicon Real, so let's get real. What is it? And also, it's something that comes up a lot on this show, because we're talking about entrepreneurialism, and so we always look at tech. And then, by definition, we do look to the valley. Some people in London say, don't look at the valley, don't compare yourself to the valley. Yeah. That's fine, but ultimately, you have to look at someone who is doing it very well. And then, you, then of course, the American and British aspects, they, they get put under a microscope. Now, you're born and bred London, yeah. right? Yeah. What do you see different in the American mentality, in entrepreneurship, and...
1: Will that change? Will that change with people in Britain? What's your read on it? So yeah, it is different. Um, It might be getting less different, but it is very different. How is it different? I think Americans, by and large, especially American entrepreneurs, have a level of confidence that British entrepreneurs don't have. This is also, that's related to um, a lack of fear, fear of failure. Okay, so it's often said that American entrepreneurs don't fear failure as much as European or UK based entrepreneurs. And obviously, that's closely related to confidence, right? right. Because it's to do with the fact that you can have a failure and it's not going to knock your confidence. And you know, you can get up and do it all again and you're not going to be the laughing stock of your friends and family and so on. Um, and so, I thought, I mean, it was great. I love being an American, spending time there, and it was great that there are um, a, a good contingent of Americans on this ski trip, because I think that they bring um, a, a vitalness and a confidence um, that is really, really refreshing. And I think us Brits could do a lot more to to sort of absorb that confidence, that optimism. We have every reason to be confident and optimistic about the UK and London tech scene. Um, I think another interesting question is like, speculating, why is this the case? Mm. and. I know. Pe- perhaps the answer is that America is you know, the world's superpower now and Britain is not. And I think probably when Britain was the world's superpower, there was more of this confidence. And people were saying, okay, we're going to totally reconceive how we build bridges or mine coal or I'm going to start a huge business and I'm going to you know, take over the world, like literally often in many cases. Um, but I think nowadays we've become a little bit too... Um, Introspective and a little bit too lacking confidence, which is a real shame because I think it's holding back hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of, of entrepreneurs in the country. And we need that more than ever. We need these people to actually take some risks and back themselves and start businesses and employ people and so on. There's that expression in America that says, Go West, young man. And yeah. I, I,
0: I think just what, Go West, young man, that's four words. But it, it says so much because in typical America, if you would go west, there was an, an abundance of capital in the form of land that no one yeah. was using. And if you wanted to work, you could work that land, get your goods to market in a place like America, and you could prosper. And back like you said in the industrial revolution or before that, Britain, you know, you could you know, you could go to the you know, the Dutch Indies, you know, you could yeah. go here, you could build this, you could go take over this. And there was probably that spirit where it was Absolutely. endless, it was limitless, and all you needed to do was hit the seas, which Britain owned. And so yeah. in a weird way that was the kind of go west of the day. But I agree. These days, I don't know if it seems like maybe it is this kind of um, non-abundance mentality. Maybe it's kind of like we only have this island left and the Americans are doing <laughs> that. But I agree. It seems like there's that mentality of uh, maybe it's not out there to be optimistic, but we have so many resources in this
1: town. Yeah. I mean, London is just, it's A- just an and amazing And chief among place. them is the diversity. So there's now this sort of yes. reverse trend yeah. that London is this astonishing magnet for talent. And... And, uh, and entrepreneurship and ideas and ambition. But a lot of that ambition is people who aren't born in the UK. Yeah. Um, and that's great. And again, that, that sort of is a parallel with America as well, because America is a sort of you know, an immigrant uh, fueled success story, you know, the greatest economic success story in history, and a country built by immigrants. And mm-hmm. that's why it's so important that the UK government continues to encourage um, immigration um, and to allow. Britain to welcome you know, the most ambitious and talented people from wherever they are in the world, um, as you know, equally um, should should America. Yeah. It's a little sadder in America's yeah. situation, given that this is a country built by immigrants. That, and it also, of course, it's so much bigger. And there is so much space there that, that the sort of tide has turned, or that this isn't even a totally clean cut argument. But I mean, that's that's why I love London ultimately, because it's you know, it's two hundred languages spoken in the city. Um, you can find people from all over the world, um, from all kinds of backgrounds, religion, races, ethnicities, and that's that's what I think brings us a lot of energy. And now British people need to really just be inspired by um, the confidence and optimism of of the people arriving in in these shores.
0: Yeah. When I, hear there, when I hear there is anti-immigration sentiment, I never hear it from anybody I know in London. And when I hear it, I almost think it's it can't be true because the, the power of the ecosystem in this city is us being in such proximity. If you talk to any startup person, the startup company happened because they were in a room with probably one or two other people and this idea happened. It didn't happen online or anything like that. And so it's this close proximity of all these different kinds of ideas and different kind of, like you said, nationalities and immigrants yeah. and all that stuff that create these amazing effects so it's
1: like that's like you said one of our greatest resources yeah here. I mean to bring this back to company culture one of the yeah. things that I spoke about on the retreat just a couple of days ago is diversity and it's so important that at just park that we continue to create and um, and put in place as diverse um, a team as possible and that is all kinds of it's every imaginable diversity from gender to sexuality to Nationality to ethnicity and, and so on, um, and that's not because it's a sort of politically correct thing to do right at all um, it's simply because I think that is the basis of the strongest and most coherent team, and that when you have that diversity of viewpoint and sentiment, I think it's a case of you know, one plus one equals three or you know one plus one to 30 equals 100. And so now we have a really diverse team already. It's really international that gives us all kinds of insight on how the service might transplant to other different markets. And that's only gonna increase in this coming year. So I mean, it's really exciting that we have people talking about you know, growing up on the other side of the world and talking about parking in different countries and different markets. And everyone is sort of coming together in London, probably the greatest city in the world, um, to solve this problem in London and ultimately where they're from. Yeah, the diversity question is fascinating. And if you're listening,
0: you should probably look at your board of directors and look at your founding team. And it's a little bit more in the news lately, because you know, the Kleiner Perkins lawsuit and in, in, in Silicon Valley and this charges. But it'd be great if you looked around and, and, and thought, how diverse is your board or is your founding setup? And is that keeping you from, from doing better, just from a pure optimization standpoint? So uh, it's, a, it's a very important point you raise. And it's one that's easy to look past. Yeah, I think
1: I mean, the particular challenge with tech is attracting more women. Yeah. So there are very few female developers. That's just a fact. And so, I think schools and universities and the private sector need to do more to encourage more women to enter tech, um, because that's ultimately in the interests of the industry to obviously have access to fully to the talents of fifty percent of the population. And it's really important that tech doesn't just become a sort of male-dominated industry like finance has largely become. Um, And I think there is. Many people have argued there was a link between the sort of testosterone, male-dominated culture in financial institutions and the crunch, because ultimately there was too much hmm. risk-taking and too many egos, and there wasn't, uh, there wasn't I guess, the, the diversity and the balance that having uh, a, a better matched uh, balance between the genders would have brought. Um, so yeah. I could see that and working in that industry. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I it's for sure.
0: I mean, yeah. we've talked to this before. I mean, a lot of people that have been on in, in that chair have said, you know, get a woman founder, get a woman on your board, get get this different perspective that you just would not have thought yeah. about. And uh, whether or not it's PC or even whether or not it's your customer base, just have someone from a different background, different nationality, different, you know, I mean, Steve Jobs was the original creator of the Dream Team, you know, for the original Macintosh. It was like, let's get an opera singer and let's get a this and a completely yeah. diversified groups of people, you know, and see what they can create. So, great point. Alex, I always ask people a few questions at the end. I'm going to hit you with these. If you could make a phone call to the 20-year-old Alex (laughs) and give that young man a bit of advice, besides telling him
1: not to go into law, what would you tell him? Well, I would probably tell him (laughs) that uh, technology is the place you will end up working. And, go explore this sector and meet people and just do everything that I ended up doing just earlier Um, to be honest. I think that, I don't know how things have changed, but I left university in 2004 and when I look back, there was such a a, a limited um, kind of careers advisory service. So you basically were told okay, if you're studying a humanities subject you're probably going to do law or consulting or That kind of thing. You know, there was just a few different uh, career paths. Um, And so, yeah, I would have said, look, actually, you don't need to do one of these really generic things. You can carve your own way through life um, and join a small business. Um, Yeah, I think I probably would have said that. You don't need to be, you don't need to do the thing that people expect you to do. Right. Best advice you've ever received, business or personal? (sighs) Um... some really good advice from uh, the guy that ran the litigation department at Clifford Chance which was just two word piece of advice that was one of the things that really stayed with me and this guy's motto was impress everyone and I thought that's just really nice because it's not just about impressing important people, it's also about impressing and making a good impression with everyone that you come into contact with because that will enrich your life and their life and you know maybe that's impressing the office cleaner. Because one of these days, you're going to be screwed, and you're going to really need to know where something is. You're going to need that person to come in. And it makes their life better and your life better. And you know, always trying to do the best by people, I think. I, I kind of got by that. And uh, he, he's had, a obviously, a phenomenally impressive career. And I think that if you can take that openness and that generosity of spirit to everyone, people will ultimately perceive you more positively. Um, so yeah. And it's, it's, a, great, great, it's a great way to, to run a
0: company as well, because that person is, you know, is going to potentially use your product or equity crowdfund you. Because you, know, you touch everyone in what you're doing. You know, it really is about engagement you know, with your employees and your culture and everything. So Absolutely. Um, last part of that question to the 20-year-old okay. that's listening to us. <laughs> these are know.
1: hard questions, Brian. Yeah, yeah, okay. they, are, they are.
0: OK, go um, But these are the best. Everybody oh, loves God. these so much. Um, to the 20-year-old that's listening around the world, could be in China, in Brazil, in Russia, a brick economy, or in America somewhere, who wants to do what you do, you know, who wants to be in the sharing economy or in the technology industry, what, what do you tell them to do?
1: Just get in touch with people. So one of the lovely things about tech is that people are by and large, very friendly. And this is something that I think we can become quite kind of complacent about working in technology. But compared to, I don't know, you know real estate or finance or some of these more kind of old-fashioned industries um, where people are just generically, you know, what's in it for me? People in technology are happy to help people. And probably the only reason why people won't give you time is because they just don't have any time. But speak to people, email them, follow them on Twitter, Try and message them on LinkedIn, ask to go for a coffee with them, you know, tell them that you'll turn up at their office whenever they want and could they have 15 minutes with them. You know, show some passion. Um, I think people can be a bit, uh, people can be shy. Um, But actually, to come back to the the sort of British-American point, you know, people should be confident and they should get in touch with people and go for it. Um, And I think they'll be pleasantly surprised. Fantastic advice, and I totally agree. The
0: amount of giving and sharing in this tech industry is amazing. And London, I think, is even more. I have this theory, since we haven't really had a PayPal effect or anything, there's not really the have and have nots. You know, everyone's still kind of around the same. This is going to be big. Um, And so everyone is just super helpful, and everybody wants London to succeed or the yeah. UK to succeed and so super helpful it's funny when you talk to people that come from the property industry or the finance industry or something you know people when they introduce each other they're like well what are you gonna do for me And tech it's like here you go here you go yeah. here you go we want to help we want to help and it's a, a breath of fresh air it's kind of sharing in a way it right is. <laughs> so uh, yeah I totally agree just get in touch the book is the business of sharing it's a fantastic read um, really interesting I think you used narrative which is just so powerful you know it's your stories it's you doing these things some really powerful people in here you know you should just you know just be an author maybe <laughs> When you're done how do people get a hold of this what's the best way
1: Amazon Amazon. business of yeah. yeah. sharing
0: okay fantastic uh, Just Park they can go and they can use your site I guess there's an app what's the best way for them to get involved with you
1: download the app or just
0: okay all right. Fantastic. If you're listening yeah. to us on iTunes, you can see us here as the two hardest working men in showbiz on uh, good Friday slash Passover. We're getting it done, uh, which is amazing. Uh, you can see us on our YouTube channel for our beautiful faces. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, please subscribe, leave us some comments, tell me what you think. Always looking for new guest suggestions. It's hello at silicon And, uh, yeah, it's been amazing meeting you. Uh, we've been talking back and forth for a few weeks. And so I'm really glad we sat down and got it all on tape because it's, it's a great story. I'm sure there's more to come and uh, I wish you
1: all the best Alex. Thank you very much Brian. Okay take Thanks care. For you having. Cheers. Bye. Right.
0: This week on Silicon Real we have Saranga Chandratalake partner at Balderton Capital.
1: If you want to make an impact, then one of the smartest, easiest, most efficient ways of doing that is to start a company. Increasingly, we are all going to have to be entrepreneurial. Forget a job for life. People don't have a job for a decade or even a job for five years these days. You have to have such passionate belief in the thing you're doing in order to be a really effective entrepreneur. An IPO is not a goal or an exit. An IPO is simply another step. The entrepreneurial challenge is knowing when to change and when not to.
0: Silicon Reel presents, Suranga Chandratalake, Balderton Capital. Seek to perfect your,
1: your game in every level in every way.